You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Okay, plasma generators. You heard it first, folks, on this week's episode of the Center for Auto Safety. Uh, Good morning to our listeners, of course. Glad to have you here. Or, you know, good whatever time of day they're listening to this. Just because it's morning for us, it could be, you know, three in the morning for somebody who has trouble sleeping. That could be. That could be. All this right. week, there's a lot of that. Well, let's jump into a story we've touched on a few times. This is the uh, Kia Hyundai uh, thefts of their cars. This is where, uh, due to, you know, Fred and his TikTok friends are watching these videos to steal the cars. Because we've talked in the past, they lack an immobilizer. And I was like, what the hell is an immobilizer? So I went on this thing called the World Wide Web today and looked up what an immobilizer is. Uh, And basically, my car has one. So uh, it's modern cars for the last 20 years or so don't really come with keys, physical keys. They come with a little key fob. And that little key fob sends a a code over the ether, the, the airwaves to the car and says, hey, I run this car. Okay, good. And we'll turn it on. But for some reason, Hyundai Kia don't do this with their previous cars. Their new cars all have this immobilizer. Um, but apparently this has caused a massive drop in car theft in the last 20 years. Um, but not for Kia Hyundai. The Metro Detroit Police Departments um, show that these Kia Hyundais are making up 10% of all auto, auto thefts in the city of Detroit, um, which sounds low. But that's what's going on because it's uh, immobilized. This is, of course, a fun fact for me. Immobilizers make it more difficult to steal a vehicle. And while most manufacturers use them, they are not a requirement of federal vehicle manufacturing safety standards. What's the point of having these standards if like something as basic as that is not added to it? Michael? Well, what, what you have in this situation is Kia and Hyundai had an option. So there's a compliance option um, under the theft protection rules that NHTSA has. You can either mark all your parts to match the theft protection rule for parts marking or install the immobilizer. Um, every other manufacturer seems to have chosen the immobilizer route and Kia and Hyundai went went the other route um, and it really hasn't paid off for them. Well, I don't know what kind of uh problems they've had yet here the only thing that we know they've done is issue a um kit that costs owners a lot of money to protect their car so they haven't really taken a hit Hmm? they're charging them like 700 dollars for this i I think it ends up being that price by the time everything's installed um probably varies from place to place so the owners are the ones who are really taking the brunt of this at the moment um, because basically Kia and Hyundai decided they weren't going to put immobilizers in like all other manufacturers decided to do. So um, like we said in the in the article that came out, you know, if, if 20 manufacturers are doing something and there's one holdout, usually the the 20 are right. And in this case, it appears that they are. Um, but it <clears throat> it highlights a, a real problem with um that we've discussed before, but with NHTSA's theft protection and prevention standards, you know, they have a compliance option here that's clearly not working. And now everyone is even Kia and Hyundai have moved to the immobilizer. Um, But auto thefts have started to skyrocket in the last two to three years, and they're not showing any sign of going down. And this is even involving vehicles with these immobilizers because, frankly, they're not they're not good enough alone to prevent a lot of the rising theft that we see. And in connection with that rising theft, we see a lot more crashes due to fleeing vehicles, a lot of crimes being committed with the use of these stolen cars. And we think it's time, you know, General Motors has been putting remote um immobilizers in their cars for a while now where if a owner sees a vehicle being used by someone that's not in the vehicle they can functionally i'm not sure exactly how it works if they stop the vehicle in the middle of a highway or what but they can track the vehicle know where it is and um that would really aid law enforcement and really prevent a lot of these safety issues we're seeing if you know 
every vehicle in America had the ability to be stopped when it is clearly engaged in highly reckless, dangerous, illegal behavior um, or being used in furtherance of other crimes. Um, it's kind of a no-brainer from a safety perspective, but then you get the privacy perspective in and you'll find that Americans don't want that in their car. Um, so it's a, it's, it's, you know, they see it as tracking um, them, you know, the more, I guess, the more conspiratorial minded among us, you know, wor worried about black helicopters and such. But functionally, it allows it allows for better public safety. Um, no one should be driving their car recklessly drunk. And if, you know, law enforcement can pick those vehicles out. If technology enables us to keep those vehicles from driving and off the road, we think that's something that that NHTSA might want to consider requiring manufacturers to do is to allow for, you know, remote immobilization of vehicles that are in the process or are uh, of committing crimes or stolen and fleeing. I mean, there are, there are thousands of situations, I'm sure, that take place across America every day that that this technology could help with and help to prevent innocent people being killed by fleeing drivers and stolen cars and and the other crimes that take place off the road but you got to keep in mind one man's swerve is another man's lane change so that's attentive listeners will notice the link between the fob and the immobilizer uh, a lot of people apparently leave their extra fob in the car for convenience so they won't have to worry about carrying it around so this makes it pretty easy for people to jump in the car and go ahead and steal it so uh should that should of course none of our listeners are that kind of person but if people could be reminded to remove the fobs from the car when they leave the car that would probably at least start to address this problem wait so you're saying that someone they they have two fobs like i have my spare fobs on my desk but never used it uh, and then there's the one we use to actually move the car around. So people are, they have one in their pocket and the extra one somewhere in their car. People do that. I had uh, some some uh, young gentleman apparently jump into my car and rifle through my uh, console, leave the contents all over the car, looking for the spare key at one point, uh, not too distant past. So yeah, there's wow. there's a subculture out there that's very interested in that technology. Because I'm pretty sure my car yells at you if you leave, if you walk away and you leave the fob in there. It's like, hey, right. idiot, come back here. It does it, it beeps. I'm pretty sure is what happens. Uh, Maybe, but you know, people's capacity to ignore alerts is, is really legendary. And that's, that is true. Um, all right. So that's the latest in the, in that news. But I, you know, Michael, what you've talked about is having the police be able to remotely disable cars i mean uh, again it's just i want to have that power i would love to be able to remotely disable cars and if the police can do it somebody with a little bit of a you know technology technological know-how can probably start doing it that's where it gets a little dangerous yeah it, you know certainly but you know with the with the vehicles that are coming on the road um that's going to be a problem for every manufacturer figuring out how to secure um the parts of the vehicle that can be controlled remotely or possibly hacked by cyber criminals who who want to cause harm or you know whatever i mean that's that's a really big concern and frankly the nitsa's if if nitsa gets on to cybersecurity and really does something other than putting out you know guidelines that don't have any effect um if they do that in the future then you know a big part of that is going to be the prevention of vehicle theft and the prevention of this type of crime because it's going to be directly connected to the overall vehicle um performance and, and critical safety system so it, it's something that has to be secured um so i Frankly, I think they're way behind in this area that, you know, they haven't really caught up to where the technology is now, where we could be using immobilizers in a number of ways to prevent crime. Um, but also, you know, they're, they're, they got a long way to go to catch up with the cybersecurity issues. So my naive brain, what I would like to see is it's not exactly related to uh, auto theft so much as with all of these new computer systems and cars and all of the kind of smart features of cars, 
my hope is that a lot of this stuff could stop dumb human behavior. So, for example, like uh, with my uh, with uh, automatic cruise control, it automatically sets a three car length distance. Um, I would love to have that just become standard because that's just basic safety. Uh, prevent people from, you know, cutting off semi trailers, uh, you know, 18 wheelers just cutting right in front of them. If we can, you know, have features like that built in, prevent that. Um, one of the things I like, as you see in Europe, is they have instead of having side view mirrors, they have side view cameras. And what I'd love with that is, hey, it eliminates people from moving their side view mirrors. Like the woman I married who basically when she has her mirror set up, it's just looking at the side of the car and half the mirror. I don't understand this. Why would you do that? And we have software and technology that could kind of optimize certain, in my mind, very basic things, you know, stopping distance behind cars in front of you at a traffic light. So when the bozo behind you hits you, you don't hit the car in front of you. Um, I think, do you think that's possible? Kind of have these as a standard features and you have to opt out as a driver? Well, you know, you, you got to remember that marital problems are very infrequently solved by recommendations about driving, number one. But that's number two, hard to do one, it, not me. One person's dumb is another person's senator. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of room for interpretation here. Well, you look, your side view mirror, like, I don't want to see half of the car. That doesn't help me. Like, you know. You know, I, I think on the side view mirror, we, we talked about it a few years ago with NHTSA. We were, you know, we were a little unconvinced that the system that was in place, um, I believe it was, you know, Audi had petitioned the agency and then the agency issued a uh you know, a pre preliminary notice of proposed rulemaking where they were exploring the possibility um, of allowing cameras to replace mirrors in some vehicles. And I think we came down on the um, side of there's just not enough evidence out there yet to determine whether you can safely take all the mirrors out of a car and replace it with cameras. And that's mainly because there's just not enough of these vehicles on the road to produce any data that can be surveyed to, to prove whether or not they're safer. Um, but you know, it's, I think that it could be made as safer, safer than mirrors. We know mirrors aren't perfect. Um, and there are blind spots and there are other things like, like we'll talk about in recall roundup this week where, you know, mirrors aren't always, um, a good reflection of how close the vehicle behind you is. Um, so there, there are a lot of places where improvements can be made using cameras, but there's also a lot of, you know, um, human interface issues. We're not exactly sure how well humans can take camera inputs into account as they drive. We're not exactly, you know, there's other issues too, like protecting the cameras. Cameras are subject to damage, just like mirrors, but in, in other ways, you know, road dirt, grime, other things that can, that typically don't affect, certainly don't affect your rear view mirror. Your side view mirrors are, are subject to some of those um snow and other things so there's there's a lot of issues here that i you know i don't think we're quite ready to start deploying vehicles on the road with no mirrors next year but um in a few years i think it can be made made pretty safe all right well let's a couple of weeks ago uh, anthony we talked about field of regard versus field of view and and you if you think of it when you're backing up your car for situational awareness you tend to move your head around because in looking in the mirror, you can kind of sweep the area around the car and look at a, at a much larger area than if you just stand still. With the camera, you cannot do that. The camera has a fixed field of view, and the field of view is the same as the field of regard. So you lose some of the ability of looking in the peripheral areas around the car that you know might be important for safety or assuring that you're not going to back into something, you know, inadvertently, <laughs> which I have done backing into a pillar in a, uh, um, in a garage, which did a nasty job on the side of my car when I pulled out too quickly, but we won't go into the details of that. Anyway, you know, that is an issue with mirrors versus cameras that is probably important part of the discussion moving forward. If people really do want to go to the camera solution. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, let's go into uh, the Institute for Insurance uh, Highway. What is it? IIHS 
IIHS, right? Just nod at me, right? It's Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. There we go. What he just said, uh, they put out a, unfortunately for some people, a confusing report that basically explained physics um, that, you know, small cars um, lose in a battle against big cars. This is part of a report that uh, IIHS and Consumer Reports put together um, talking about teen driving and young people driving. And in the report, they recommended pretty much sedans, not really telling everyone to go out and buy giant SUVs. Um, but unfortunately, the writers at the blog Streets Blog USA failed basic reading comprehension, and they went with the title, Buy a Big SUV to Smash Your Neighbor's Tiny Little Car. Um, well, you know, the, 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 the kind of the, the story this week on that was that IHS put out a tweet basically directly suggesting that 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 uh, parents should be thinking about buying jeans, heavier cars. So they really got jumped on by, by a lot of groups for that tweet specifically this week. Right. That or, damn tweet. I think it was this week. It may have been last week. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the tweet said it was Teen Driver Safety Week tweet. And the tweet said smaller cars provide less crash protection, which – it's true empirically. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. But what this type of messaging promotes is functionally an arms race among not just parents of people, but, but people buying cars for themselves who want a heavier vehicle because they think it protects them more in a crash. Um, when I think uh, a lot of us are need to be more concerned about the people outside of our vehicle, the people we're going to hit in our enormously heavy vehicle, um, our EEV running down the road and, you know, causing greater injuries to pedestrians than an, a smaller vehicle would. So there's, uh, I think what, the objections to the IHS tweet were that, you know, it was being presented in a way that this is a consideration that should be at the forefront when you're buying a car for your team is that it's a heavier vehicle. And to me, you know, teens are the last people that need to be driving the deadliest cars because they are prone to more accidents. Um, and, and what we need here is, you know, obviously better driver education, which we don't have enough of in America. Um, and, we need to all come together and figure out a way to make cars lighter. And that's going to be a huge problem because it's being exacerbated by the weight of EV batteries that are being um, mandated by many states and encouraged by others uh, across America. So we're, we're coming to a critical moment in a weight crisis with vehicles in America. And um, you know, if, if we have to find a way not to enter this arms race where people are trying to protect themselves by adding extra weight to cars. But hasn't that been going on for a long time? I mean, that's why it know, has, and it needs to stop. <laughs> All right. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, I mean, it, uh, I mean, it's a, it's going to be a huge problem. I mean, you're functionally talking about adding just thousands and thousands of pounds, um, of weight, especially in larger trucks to our roads. And the only possible result of that is increased um, damage and crashes and increased fatalities and increased injuries. There, there can be no other result um, because right now we do not have the type of crash avoidance systems that'd be necessary to reduce a lot of those crashes. It's, it's, it's inevitable and it's going to be a problem. Well, remember, vehicle weight and mileage run in different directions. So the heavier the vehicle is, the less, the more fuel it's going to consume inevitably. So, uh, you know, maybe that's a self-limiting process. I don't know. But the idea of putting every juvenile driver behind the wheel of a highway bus for their own safety, uh, you know, has obvious limitations. If that's that's where this is headed, and uh, and a highway bus weighs about ten tons. And yes, the driver is a lot safer in an accident than if they're in the car that they hit. But if you have two highway buses that collide at high speed, uh, all of a sudden you've got a headline in your local newspaper. So you know clearly that's not where you want to go, and clearly there's got to be a different solution. Prevent teen driving, right? Is that the answer? Part of it.
Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad I'm not. That, my, my naive brain goes into the wishful thinking. I'm hoping improved software will prevent a lot of these clash, crashes and whatnot. But I, I think, as you guys have told me repeatedly, that, <laughs> that we're a long time away from having that be a reality. But I don't want to live in reality. And with speaking of uh, the wonderful world of software and cars, let's go into Recall Roundup. Strap in. Time for the Recall Roundup. Because uh, our friends over at Volkswagen, I think we've talked about this before, whereas this week, uh, NHTSA forces a recall on nearly 225,000 Volkswagen cars over a glitch that Volkswagen calls inconsequential. <clears throat> Basically, the tire pressure monitor inside a number of Volkswagen cars failed um, and is not giving drivers the correct information. Um, VW says it's inconsequential. NHTSA says you're wrong. Well, VW was wrong. I mean, they are basically uh, here saying that, yeah, we know we don't comply with the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standard, but we don't think we should have to recall it. Um and that tactic when you know when when it involves a performance standard that you're screwing up on with a, with a vehicle component that's a really high bar to reach at side to my knowledge has approved maybe one maybe two petitions like that in its history usually these inconsequential non-compliance petitions involve things like labeling things that are pretty you know or, or it would take a pretty significantly rare event for a safety event to occur due to them um in this case you know your tire pressure monitoring system won't work if all five, four of your tires are deflating at the same time that could be a problem um and you know the bigger problem here for me is that the repair is just a software update. I mean, they filed to prevent this recall from happening when it's going to be the cheapest recall that you can have uh, because you're going to drive your vehicle to the uh, dealer and they are going to update it with software and send you on your merry way. So it's not like this was going to cost them a lot to replace parts and that sort of thing. But functionally, they because they petitioned for this um, inconsequential non-compliance, they've now delayed the recall for about two and a half years, which means that my 2019 Jetta sitting in the driveway has not complied with federal motor vehicle safety standards since the day I bought it. And I didn't even know about that. So I'm not too happy right now with that process. Shameful. Uh, that somewhat, somewhat tangentially, um, with uh, these recalls going to dealers and a lot of manufacturers going trying to go to a dealerless model, like Tesla doesn't really have dealers, Rivian doesn't have any dealers. When cars get recalled now, like I can bring my Toyota to a Toyota dealer, you can bring your Volkswagen to a Volkswagen dealer. What happens when I don't have a dealer near me? Like I think there are various combinations of things. I, I I don't know for sure. I think Tesla has some service centers and you know bigger localities, but a lot of these new um, electric vehicles, particularly, I've seen some. Uh, lucid air vehicles that are that are frequently seem to be being towed off of roads around america because they're losing drive power and having some sort of battery problems and it seems like they're sending out um basically they send out a tow truck and grab it and take it to wherever they repair these vehicles i think it may be out of state sometimes i mean some of these smaller companies don't have the service center network obviously that the larger manufacturers have so you might have to send your vehicle a few states over for repairs and it could be a month or two before you get it back and that's a you know obviously the owners of the vehicles are, are pretty pissed off when that happens when they've just spent a lot of money on a uh, really neat techie luxury car but um it's in in those vehicles and in teslas and in some of those they have over-the-air updates which of course can fix a lot of these software problems um but can't take care of the physical defects that require some time in the shop for example our next recall from tesla um Potentially number of vehicles involved, 53. Huh, interesting. So Tesla 2021 plus Model S driver's side outside rear view mirror recall. Uh, it looks like their recall, their their cars lack the uh, objects and mirrors, 
objects are closer than they appear. What happened here? This is confusing. Why can't it be a camera instead of a physical mirror? Well, here, um, basically, they installed passenger side uh, rear view mirrors that didn't have the language stamped on them, objects and mirror closer than they appear. And that language is required by uh, the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards. So they had a clear non-compliance and they had to recall it. Um, I'm sure they they weren't happy with that, but you know, it's only 50 something cars. So no big deal. I don't know what that has to do with cameras. <laughs> well, look, if there was a camera, you wouldn't need the mirror. That's what well, I'm you know, right now you need the mirror. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. All right, and that uh, that's all of our recall roundup for this week. So, again, uh, keeping the thread of Tesla, let's talk about autonomous vehicles this week. Um, we got some good listener feedback. Um, that was sent an example of a good use case environment for autonomous vehicles, which was a, a small shuttle company that is testing two vehicles around JFK airport. Um, basically there are two little, um, um, people movers essentially that work in a, uh, limited domain. What's the word? Come on. Tight, small domain environment. Basically they only go in certain limited scope areas. That would be, that would be an operational design domain. Ah, you need yes. to go back and listen to the town. <laughs> operational design domain um which, it was kind of fun to watch you twist in the wind anthony yeah, so I, sorry about that no no you can see the both of them just laughing then laughing and laughing um where it's uh it's these electric vehicles and i can't find the name of the company in front of me um it here we go navia. navia 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 and it's these cute little vehicles and they'll pick you up and shuttle you around jfk um it's a, a pretty pretty neat little thing. I think it's a good example of autonomous vehicles working, but I'm sure Mr. Perkins will have a thought on that. Well, I just hope they have a really good airplane recognition system in them because <laughs> <clears throat> that would be a problem. But, uh, you know, it, it is a good place to test them in a sense because it's a private area. It's controlled access. There's not a lot of extra stuff going on. A lot of not a lot of pedestrians there. Uh, still, you've got a lot of safety issues to address, and apparently, they're getting experience in Europe that is beneficial. And I don't know. We'll see what happens. I don't. I, you know, I don't know of any compelling reason to say it's a bad idea. Uh, just got to be careful. There's a lot of tin cans full of fuel in an airport, and that's got to be a concern for them. Well, the Navia shuttles use eight LiDAR sensors. Onboard safety operators are also used, but they don't technically have to be used in these autonomous vehicles. The Navia's Michigan Control Center can also monitor what's going on and step in virtually on some matters if desired. So I like the fact that there's actually a human on board in case things go sideways. Sure, uh, but notice that you said can monitor, not does monitor. Uh, the language is important and the the numbers of you know the ratio of observers to vehicles in motion is probably an important thing to monitor we don't know what that is it's up to the company to decide how much human interface they want to have with these individual vehicles so it's you know it's a concern but apparently they're willing to take the risk and see what happens all right. Well, speaking of having humans monitor autonomous vehicles, uh, there's another good article this week about um, using autonomous forklifts in warehouses, um, which is already a thing as far as I can tell, whereas they basically have robot forklifts that will drive along pre, uh, for lack of a better term, painted paths. But now they're having uh, forklifts come out and I, I guess just having one person monitor them from remote, remote control, monitor a few dozen of them at a time as they drive around a warehouse, avoiding humans um, or knocking them out. You know, I don't know if OSHA's in compliance in these factories. Um, well, they avoid humans too, but humans avoid them because in that environment, these forklifts will have uh, flashing lights, warning sounds 
all, you know, all kinds of devices intended to make sure that humans are alerted to their presence and avoid them, as well as their own software to avoid the humans. That's something we've talked about before in relation to self-driving vehicles on public roads. Self-driving vehicles on public roads do not have any such features to alert people that, you know, there is an automatic system in front of them and they should be alert to avoid that system. So it's a, that's a very different, very different environment and very different uh, approach to using autonomous vehicles in the vicinity of human beings than what we've been talking about before and use of them on public roads. But as a wise man once said about 25 minutes ago, humans have a great capacity for ignoring alerts. They do. They do. They absolutely do. Um, and so you've got to make the alerts sufficient so that people get really annoyed by them and make them very hard to ignore. You know, maybe the forklifts are yelling, hey, I'm going to decapitate you. I'm going well, to have, break your legs. Could be. They have, But they have klaxons. They have, you know, they beep and they flash and <clears throat> they're hard to miss. Mm, you'd be impressed what I can ignore when I have headphones on. I, I no, I I know you have infinite capacity for ignoring things, Anthony. What? <laughs> <laughs> All right, but this article also text te uh, touches on long haul driving. Um, some long distance trucking technology companies say remote control of trucks on public roads isn't safe because it relies on wireless signals that could be interrupted. Instead, they are pinning their hopes on autonomous technology to drive the truck paired with human supervisors who step in remotely to provide direction when the truck needs to make an unexpected decision, such as whether it should cross into a shoulder or to go around a broken down car. All right. So now this is a fun one. So this is talking about autonomous long haul trucks and the industry saying these aren't safe because we don't have good cellular coverage around the country. But through magic, we'll be able to remotely monitor these vehicles where we don't have good cellular and wireless connection. So is the uh, trucking industry admitting they have their own private cellular network that's hidden from the rest of the world, or is this just nonsense? I, I, I can't tell what it is, really. I mean, they're saying, well, it's bad because remote operation is tough to do and doesn't always work. So we're going to remotely monitor these things. I, I, I'm, I'm just struggling to understand the logic there. Um, you know, if they were saying they were putting a driver in each vehicle to monitor, monitor it, it might make sense. But here they're saying, oh, we don't we don't think these vehicles can be safely controlled remotely but we think they can be supervised safely remotely. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Sometimes, uh, you know, uh, uh, sometimes industries that are building a new device or a new technology revert to faith-based engineering. <laughs> and um, that maybe what's happening here, I'm not sure, but, you know, the, it, there's an expression that a friend of mine uh, used to use called Pittsbab, High in the sky, by and by, and there's a there's a close interface between Pittsbab and faith-based engineering that creeps into technologies that are being pushed forward in a new market. So there may be some of that going on here as well. There, you know, there may be some sufficient safety design behind this that we simply don't understand because of the limitations of the press release. So we need to give them you know the latitude to provide additional information. But yeah. It sounds a little odd, doesn't it? Well, you're a lot more generous than I think myself and Michael were reading this. Um, well, the, the article also suggests that they are going to, you know, it kind of makes this uh, silly connection, I think, that they're going to be using truck drivers to be soup, some of these remote supervisors. Um, and then they're saying, well, at some point, we're going to reach the point where these guys can be supervising 40 vehicles at once. And to me, that's that's that I, I don't see how a, a supervisor could safely monitor 40 vehicles at once. That's mind boggling. Maybe they have some super new technology that I'm not aware of uh, again. But that seems like something that would be 
awfully difficult for for a human remote supervisor to do. I mean, the closest thing I can think of is uh, drone operators. Um, you know, they're monitoring a drone in the Middle East, and they're sitting in a lab in uh, Nevada. Um, but as far as I know, they're just it's a one to one relationship that they're monitoring something. And they also have, you know, secure satellite connections to these things the entire time. I mean, maybe they're, you know, going to have secure satellite connections to these trucks, but they don't really touch on that. Also, I don't imagine the Teamsters are going to be like, yeah, we'll just, you know, completely phase out people in the cars, the cabins. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the job plan there is basically if you're putting one trucker as a supervisor for 40 trucks, you know, you're essentially eliminating 97.5% of the drivers. And you also need a driver to actually take the vehicle off of the highway. None of them are making any claim at all that, that they can go from, from the warehouse through local roads onto an interstate off of the interstate back to whatever its destination is. So yeah, I don't know, no, nor vehicles, should they be. No, I, I, <laughs> I don't know if these vehicles are like pulling off on the side of the road, being like, you know, letting out, you know, the, the meth dealer and whatever else. You know, I, I think there, I think the general idea is there's a kind of a hub right off the interstate that they're going to, you know, basically they would have a human driver um, or at least a direct human supervisor that's controlling the vehicle while it's in the urban environment or in the, the city, but they're functionally just going to be moving these, these um, heavy trucks from one hub to another um, that would be located hopefully right off the interstate uh, and not interact too much with uh, local traffic and that sort of thing. Well, let's remember that safety is at best a secondary consideration. This is all being driven by the desire to increase profitability of the trucking lines. Um, I think you just came up with a title for this episode. Safety is at best a secondary consideration. Uh, well, Waymo, who, uh, you know, that's essentially Google's self-driving automated driving platform, where they've been kind of honest about the limitations of this stuff. Waymo's autonomous software and hardware um, run today in trucks that have an autonomous specialist in the driver's seat. Um, I, I guess they call an autonomous specialist uh, a truck driver. <laughs> so uh, they're at least, you know, requiring a human inside the cab the entire time because they know it's just there's too many scenarios where this stuff will fail. Right. And, and, you know, that's something when if you go back to our episode with Phil Copeman, he talked about and he talked about a lot in his book was the the, the real need for trained um, professional safety drivers in these in these vehicles, not just, you know, a guy off the road who you're going to sit there and say, OK, watch the car and make sure it breaks when it needs to break. You got it. Go for it. Um, and, you know, it sounds like Waymo is at least putting something into that effort by having autonomous specialists versus just, you know, your average run of the mill driver coming off the road, applying for a job, which is something that might've been a problem in the Uber AV fatality in Arizona a couple of years back. Right. Um, so what, last piece on autonomous vehicles, uh, Thatcham research um, came out with this great bit of research uh, this past week. Um, it was polling people their backgrounds like what their expectations are for self-driving vehicles and according to them 77 percent of 17 to 24 year olds in the u.s think they can buy a car that can fully drive itself today so you're talking 77 percent of of kids born this century essentially think they can get a, a a car that will drive itself i have no idea where they would have gotten such an well, i mean i don't want to pick on the millennials too much here because the old folks aren't doing much better i think the ihs study that came out a few weeks ago said that over i think it was near 60 percent of everyone buying some of these cars like teslas that claim to have full self-driving or, or whatever they're calling it this week that those folks think those cars are self-driving so um this kind of goes back to the stupid we were talking about earlier mm. Yeah, it's surprising. So 25 to 34 year olds, it's 59% think this is true. 35 to 40 year olds drops barely to 56%. 45 to 54 year olds, 50% think this is the case. And 55 plus um, say, get off my lawn. 
<laughs> so it's uh, and really i mean i think the the culprit of causing this is really just comes down to that one company um who's well, advertising well, things that don't exist you know the, the other companies could have stepped in and and said something about that for the last 10 years and they've kind of just sat back and watched it happen so uh, when there's confusion in the marketplace, you know, they, they only have themselves to blame. Well, they're all chasing the same rainbow <clears throat> and, uh, you know, looking for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that Tesla has already found. Um, nobody wants to get, nobody wants to get in the way of that gold rush. Right. That fantasy. Um, and with that in mind, let's go to the Tao of Fred. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. This well, week, thank you. Yeah, well, this week, uh, can you educate us? And by us, I primarily mean me on voltage, mm. current, and power. Specifically, my question is I don't understand with electric vehicles, kilowatts per hour, and EV stats. I can understand in a car, like, hey, my car gets 35 miles to the gallon, my battery pack gets 2.3 kilowatt hours per range mile what happened how far will it go before it dies and i cry wow well, thank you it is confusing there's a there's a lot of geekiness in this so i'll try to uh, i'll try to simplify it um there's really three fundamental things that you have to understand it, one is the current another is the voltage and another is the resistance so current and voltage, you can understand by thinking of yourself standing beneath Niagara Falls. That's probably a bad idea, right? I've because there's a lot of water and it's falling from a great height, right? Well, if you were standing at that same height and a garden hose was sprinkling water on you, it's probably not a big deal because the current, the amount of water that's coming through is very different. If you're in those two situations, the uh, the voltage, the height would stay the same, but because the current is so small, you're okay. It's the it's the, the voltage times the current that gives you the power. So power is watts, kilowatts, what have you. Um, and another thing to remember is that the voltage is always relative. So it's always a voltage reference to something else. Like if you have a battery that's a one and a half volt battery, that's one and a half volts between the two ends of the battery, right? So there's technically they call it an anode and a cathode, but you don't need to worry about that. Those are just the two ends of the battery. And the voltage is measured across those two terminals. So if you understand that, is that, is that pretty clear right now? The, yeah, go to Niagara yeah. Falls, stand underneath it when they lower the tap. Right. Okay. That's exactly right. So the current is the voltage divided by the resistance. So if you have a lot of resistance, high ohms, for example, if you if you just hold that battery in the air and don't put anything across it, it's going to last a long time because there is very little current running between the two ends of the battery. But if you take a wire and you connect it to the two ends of the battery, all of a sudden you have a path that has very little resistance in it. And a lot of things can happen, primarily that the wire is going to heat up and get hot because the current's not running through it very fast. So how much, so that's probably clear to everybody, right? It's a bad idea to take a wire and stick it into the outlet in your house. Even though I used to do that as a kid, but you know, never, never mind. You, you, you know too much about my childhood already. And look, all of us have tested a nine volt battery by sticking it on your tongue. Absolutely, and that's Not current going through your tongue. Um, but your yeah. tongue has a fair amount of resistance, even more as it starts to heat up. But never mind. That's you know that's that's one way of doing it. So huh. the power that we talked about, power is measured in terms of watts. Uh, typically, watts or horsepower. There's a conversion between the two, but but those are both terms associated with power. And power is the current. Remember, the current is the amount of electrons that are actually flowing through it, squared times the resistance. <clears throat> now, there's not a lot to learn about that, except that if you have very low resistance, then the power can get very large because the current starts to get very very large, right? 
<clears throat> so the power is the current squared over the resistance. That can be measured in watts. It can be measured in horsepower. Um, and basically, that's that's what watts is all about. Now, energy <clears throat> is the is the power times the amount of time. So that's why you hear the term watt hours, for example. That's that's another measure of energy. Uh, could be kinetic energy. It could be a lot of things, but that's energy. And the relationship between them uh, is that power. <clears throat> excuse me. Power is to energy what miles per hour is to miles. Right. So power is a rate. Energy is an amount. Just the same way that miles per hour is a rate, and miles is a, is a quantity. So if you drive 60 miles an hour for one hour, how far do you go, Anthony? Getting back to algebra. 60 miles. There you go. <laughs> so if you have 100 watts and you use that 100 watts for one hour, how much energy have you used? 60 miles. Oh, wait, 100 watts. 100 watt hours. 100, 100 watt hours. How far did so, I go? I don't, well, you you got to see for that, but that's okay. You're still yeah, passing. Uh, You're, you we're know, getting there. I, I'm a, is, wait, is this a dream I'm having right now? Am I in the 13th grade again? It could be. Could oh, be. No. All right. So, I, but that's all there is to it. If you if you got those terms under your belt, then you can understand a lot of what's going on. Now, if we look at uh, Tesla, per the Tesla website, their energy storage system, another word for batteries, is comprised of six thousand eight hundred thirty-one individual lithium-ion cells. Ooh, that's a lot. Okay, and so each of those cells is about four volts roughly and so in order to produce the 500 volts that the battery runs at you have to you have to put about 344 of the individual cells in series that means nose to tail it's like the old days when you had the d batteries and you put them in your flashlight right so and you have to put them in the, the correct orientation so for the tesla battery it's 344 of those and if you do that, you get 500 volts out of it. Okay, so that's the pressure. That's like the height of the Niagara Falls. Right. Right. So if you have a very small amount of current going through that, like you're using those 500 volts to run a, a wristwatch, for example, very current is very low because the wristwatch has a lot of resistance. It doesn't need a lot of power. So as long as everything's balanced out, you'll have very little in terms of current. So what happens is that sometimes you have what's called a short circuit. Now, if you think of the circuit, right, remember the voltage is always measured relative to something else. And typically in a circuit, you have what's called a ground, which is the sink for all of the current that's going through. It just goes into the, the ground level. And then you have the source, which generates the power. And then you got something in between like a motor, for example, or a light or a clock or something, but there's there's a load in between. And as long as everything is all balanced, it's fine. Everything just goes right through. The load is the resistance, and the resistance determines how much current is going through the system. So it's all balanced out. If you have a hot, so here's your quiz, Anthony and Michael. Oh, no. If you have higher resistance, does the current go up or does it go down? Come on, Michael. Your turn. I answered the first two questions. He's on. Michael, you're muted. Yeah, he's. You know, that's he's a like, dodge. Oh, he can't yeah, answer that way. That's, he's writing down C. C. It's going up. It's going up. Our oh, good guess, but wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it's going down. Come on. Yeah. I knew high that. resistance Ooh. means just just what the common English term means of resistance. So if you have high resistance, the current goes down because there's less current going through it. Like on January 6th, was high resistance, less current going through. Wait, right? Uh, I, I took us off topic. Let's go back. Unfortunately, to not enough resistance. And you can think of that as a short circuit of democracy, which is what uh, they were trying to do. So that's good. I like that. But uh, if, if you had, right? So if you had proper amount of resistance, none of those nitwits would have breached the Capitol. But there you go. So got some editing to do today. <laughs> I can tell by looking at his face. <laughs> uh, who's in charge of this anyway? Okay, so a short circuit is a path between the voltage source and the ground 
that bypasses the expected load. Okay, so if you have a high resistance, you have a small current, small power. Remember, the power is the square of the current. Um, but if you have a very low resistance, you run into problems. Like the current becomes very large, and because it's very large, the power, which is due to the square of the current, also gets extremely large. So in a short circuit between a, uh, the terminals of a system that has as much energy, remember watts times hours is energy, right? And that's what a battery holds is energy. If you've got a, a way of taking all that energy and running it through very quickly, then a lot of power is dissipated and power that's dissipated becomes heat. So are, are, we, are we on board here so far? Yes, so we use to heat our coffee. There you go. Right? Okay. So as an example of that, if you have uh, your house, you've probably got something like 100 amps or 200 amps coming in it, and you got this elaborate circuit breaker box beside the house to regulate how much current is going through any particular circuit, because every circuit has a design limit for how much power can safely go through it. You don't want to heat those wires up and cause them to burn. So you've got the circuit breakers in place. Um, so we're talking about 100 amps for your entire house distributed into all those different circuits. Now an arc welder, which generates a plasma, which everybody used to have in their old house because it would be in the TV and it would generate a plasma that created the picture on the CRT, cathode ray tube, that you looked at. Anyway, that's an aside. But the arc welder current is somewhere between 150 and 300 amps. Okay, so amps is the way you measure current. It's called amperes. It's named after probably somebody named Ampere. I'm not sure. But 150 <laughs> to 300 amps. And a Prius car, which has a much smaller battery than a Tesla, uh, is designed for something like 296 amps, roughly 300 amps, um, and 60 kilowatts. Remember, power is voltage times current so it's 60 kilowatts for a prius um a full-scale e-car and using tesla plaid as an example runs with 1500 amps divided between two motors so 750 amps per motor remember the welding current the arc welder that we've all seen is 150 amps right 150 to 300 amps so each of the two motors in the tesla is drawing 750 amps that's a lot of freaking power okay that's right. a lot of current okay so you've got to you've got to regulate that and the engines are designed the motors are designed so that just the right amount of current goes through on a good day everything is fine but if you have a short circuit anywhere in that system which means you bypass the motor then all of that current will run through the wires and make them very very hot so that's why short circuits are a problem if that short circuit is caused by, for example, a loose connection, uh, it can get very, very hot very quickly and generate a plasma like you had safely inside of your TV screen years ago, but now it's out in the open and it's inside your car. It's getting very, very hot very, very rapidly. It melts metal. It, a, a lot of things can happen, all of them bad. So. That's why we have to be very careful about that. Now, it's important to note that a human being can only get shocked if you somehow get between the high voltage terminal and the battery and the ground on the battery. Okay, so if you just, unless you're in that circuit, unless you're in that loop, it's perfectly fine. You can touch it, you can feel it, you can look at it, everything will be perfectly fine. There is a prospect, a possibility that if you are charging your car at a charging station and that charging station uses the earth ground meaning the earth the planet that we live on as the ground level the reference level for the voltage and you happen to be standing on the ground in bare feet and you touch the high voltage terminal you could create what's called a ground loop that runs through your body which is a really bad idea so if you're <laughs> if you're charging your car and you're opening up the cases inside your car Please put shoes on. Okay, it's a it's a really bad idea to do that. I did that my, with myself playing electric guitar once, where I was we were recording and I I didn't have shoes on and my feet were sweating and every time I touched the guitar strings I was getting shocked. There you like, go. You happening? You were a ground loop. 
Congratulations. Heavy metal. Because the uh, he, he's still a ground. Actually, the metal hey, strings. Wait a second. Metal strings vibrating in a magnetic field, which is what the pickups are, will generate electricity on their own. So, uh, yeah, congratulations. Um, one other thing to think about with short circuits, though, is an internal short circuit in one of the cells. Remember, there's 300 some odd cells in a single string for you know in the battery that produces this power. So a short circuit in any one of them, an internal short circuit, can dissipate up to 15 watt hours. So that's hard to think about is 15 watt hours. How much energy is that? Well, so I did a couple of comparisons. Um, it's basically the equivalent of applying an arc welder to the cell boundaries for two minutes or so, or uh, the equivalent of a red hot stovetop burner for six minutes. So you can see that's a, that's a lot of heat that goes into it. That's why the short circuit inside a battery is a problem because the battery is enclosed. The heat doesn't have anywhere to go except to heat up the system. So it can, you know, cause a fire. It can cause adjacent cells to also short circuit because they get very hot. That's, uh, think of putting an arc welder on something for two minutes. It's a lot of, a lot of heat, a lot of power, a lot of energy. Uh, let's see. So are we confused you yet or is that, is that enough? So my, my initial question was how far is my EV going to go at 2.2 kilowatt hours or whatever the battery is rated at? What I've taken away is I should wear shoes and I may need an intro to electrical engineering class to understand the battery of it, of my EV. Well, the, the battery on the Tesla for example, which has something like a 400-mile range, um, has about, oh, let's see, I think it was uh, 100 kilowatt hours. Okay, so if it's drawing, so, you know, it's drawing something like, uh, you know, 10 kilowatts at high speed, so you got maybe 10 hours of operation. So that's that's how the multiplication works out. That, that makes sense. Well, it's confusing because different cars list out like so. There's some. I think it's a Polestar has like 2.2 kilowatt hours per mile or something like that. Right. Um, and then you know the Hyundai Ionic Six is like 5.6 kilowatt hours per mile or something like that. Right. Obviously, there are different size vehicles. Like you know, one weighs X pounds, the other one weighs twice as much. Um, they're different shape vehicles. Is there an easy way for the average consumer to understand what what I'm really getting out of these vehicles, as opposed to you know kilowatt hours? Because that's it, it, I think for the average consumer that's incredibly geeky. I think almost miles per gallon is a little geeky, but people we've been used to it for you know really only thirty years. Um, really sure. paying attention to that. What's the well, let's let's say let, a little quiz here. If you've got 15 gallons of gas in your car and you use a half a gallon per hour, how many hours can you run your car? 30. There you go, Michael. <laughs> you, ding, 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 ding. We've got a winner here. Look at the big brain on Michael. Hmm. So it's the same. It's not a waste. It is, it's exactly the same kind of calculation for the electric car. If you have a battery with X amount of kilowatt hours capacity in the battery and you're drawing at y amount of kilowatts then you take the kilowatt hours divided by kilowatts and you end up with hours right so that's that's the simple calculation that you have to do those numbers can be hard to find because the manufacturers don't always put them forward and there's a lot of variables involved in how much energy the battery can actually deliver rate of charge uh, how you know the uh, temperature a lot of things are going on in that but so ultimately but ultimately reduces to the amount of energy kilowatt hours that are in the battery divided by the amount of power that's being used at any given time which is a few kilowatts uh, but as a consumer i should probably just focus on what it says the epa estimated range how far this is going to go and then the estimated time to charge to 80% or so. That's correct. Because okay. charging Everything too fast, charging too oh. fast degrades the battery more quickly. So there's a, there's a balance between how fast it can charge and how long it's going to last. 
Um, similarly, if you discharge it too fast, you also reduce the life of the battery. They don't like to have rapid cycles. They don't like to have deep cycles. So keeping a moderate draw on each battery is the way to extend its life. Okay. All right. I think everyone's going to have to learn a little bit moving forward when they all switch to EVs eventually. Um, it's kind of like getting your first phones, your mobile phones, where you're like, hey, I plug it well, in all the time. The battery's dead. <laughs> Sorry. One other thing I want to touch on is that there are now uh, a technology called mild hybrid cars. And they're available in some models of uh, a lot of different companies, Audi, Ford, Hyundai, Ram, Jeep, yada, yada, yada Mercedes. And basically what it does is it uses what used to be the simple generator on the car and turns that also into an electric motor so that it can give a boost to the car. And so about 10 horsepower can be delivered to your drive system through a properly configured uh, electric motor generator. If you look at it in your car and open the hood, you'll never know that it's anything different because the differences are all hidden inside the electronics that drive it. But in order to do that, people want to move to higher voltages in the car. So normally, uh, most cars have a 12-volt battery system that runs the lights and the radio and all that sort of stuff. Tesla also has a 12-volt system that runs a lot of the ancillary accessories, uh, doors with power windows, radio, stuff like that. But in order to reduce the size of the wires, and to increase the efficiency of the electric motor now that's that's being used to drive the car, the companies are moving to higher voltages. So you will find 24-volt systems and 48-volt uh, systems that are now in place in cars, which are being used to drive this mild hybrid system. So there have been reported some issues associated, some safety issues associated with these higher voltage systems. And if any of our listeners are aware of those, please give us a call. We'd, we'd love to learn more about that. But the point is that because the size of the wires and the efficiency, the size of the wires is being driven by the current, okay, the power density of the motors, in other words, how much power can it produce based on the amount of weight that it, uh, that it carries, is determined by the voltage. So if you drive the system towards higher voltage, you can have somewhat smaller motors and you can have somewhat smaller wires. The problem associated with this is if you have loose connections, remember you got higher voltage, so the loose connections are going to cause arcing or could cause arcing. They can cause more corrosion. There's other things that happen. So this is, uh, this is a new technology that's emerging. People might want to look for this, but... Uh, if you see something that has a 48-volt system versus a 12-volt system, you can probably expect that it has a, a new kind of drive system called a mild hybrid drive system that has some performance benefits for the car. Just wanted to bring that up as, a, as an ancillary note. And with a mild hybrid system, you can wear very casual shoes to charge your vehicle, right? You can wear your itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka dot bikini if you On want. On my feet? As long as you're not standing barefoot next to the car. Yes. Okay. Well, great. Stop looking through my luggage. Um, I, I think we, uh, <laughs> I, I think we've taken a, a lot of people's times today. Um, so, hey, visit autosafety.org, donate, subscribe, become a supporter, send in your questions, comments like last week's listener, Michael in upstate New York, who sent us that great little piece about the uh, autonomous vehicles at JFK. Uh, if you go ahead and send this in, um, you know, Fred will send you his uh, emotional feelings through the ether and give you an embrace through the powers of Tao. Um, Michael won't regret his choice of going to law school instead of culinary school. Um, and I'll just be fine. So, hey, uh, thanks listeners. Please become a subscriber. Please donate. Uh, that's how all of us can afford razors because we all have beards. <laughs> Thank you. For Thank more you information, all. visit www.autosafety.org.
fine. Uh, uh, the background behind this is that GM put in a inconsequentiality petition to avoid having to replace some of the airbag inflators in their pickup trucks. And they were, they were able to extend that, uh, that recall by about what, two or three years, Michael, something like that. Yeah, at least it was. <clears throat> so that's the back. And you guys are going to have to help me on, you know, at the end with the dum de 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 dum de de lie because I, my tongue, I can't get my tongue right around that. But okay, here it comes. Ode to General Motors. When we had a problem with our airbag self-inflation, we thought we could save some bucks by long procrastination. How could we extend this scam to cover our whole nation? We will file an inconsequentiality petition. I'm not doing that one anymore. Pretty dumb, isn't it? Because I was afraid to speak.